Good evening. This is Cinema 60. the subway, the roar of the big town get you down. What to do, Polly Magoo? Why, Polly, eat a cracker, a Yankee Doodle cracker. Mmm, chew that vitamin goodness. Now you can get back to work, refreshed, full of new energy. Put on your eyes, put on your mouth, put on your lovely face, and now look at yourself. Don't you feel better? I'll say, Yankee Doodles are dandy. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. We've got a special guest with us today, Natasha Deegan. Hi, Hi Natasha. Natasha. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so Natasha is the chair of the Art Market Studies program at FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And uh, we brought her on to talk about uh, a uh, an important... Uh, well, is it important? I'll, I'll let you... Uh, well, in our discussion, we'll decide how important the movie is. But um, a, uh, a movie about fashion from the 60s called Who Are You, Polly Magoo? Directed by uh, William Klein. Um, it was Natasha's choice. Uh, she, she said that it, uh, it tied into the book that she's working on writing right now. Uh, so, so, Natasha, you've got one book that you've written called The Market. Um, do, you want, do you want to tell us about that a little bit and then tell us what this new book is? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I run a program called Art Market Studies at FIT, which is about the art market, and it's meant for people who are interested in getting into the art world, working for galleries, auction houses, museums, things like that. And so um, because the program is focused on the art world, but it's offered through FIT, um, which, as you mentioned, is the Fashion Institute of Technology. I feel like since I started this job, um, one of the major challenges has been to explain that even though it's at FIT, I don't actually work in fashion. <laughs> and the program actually has nothing to do with fashion. Um, but now it's about to get even more confusing because the book that I'm currently working on is about the blurring of boundaries between the art world and the fashion industry. So I've sort of leaned into the fashion side of not exactly my job, but the institute that I'm working at. So um, yeah, it's about um, really since Warhol. So that's how I've defined it, art and fashion since Warhol. And looking at all of these different sort of collaborations between artists and fashion designers and brands. So everything from artist brand collaborations, you know, you can think of like the Murakami Louis Vuitton bags to um, luxury fashion houses or brands that have launched their own art foundations and museums that have really nothing to do with fashion, but mostly to do with contemporary art, or fashion exhibitions that take place in art museums and the sort of proliferation of those types of shows, which have been so popular with the public, and now even, you know, museums that focus on contemporary art or sort of encyclopedic museums that um, show art through the ages are all sort of uh, flocking towards these fashion exhibitions. So when I was thinking about what film to choose for this podcast, there's so many films I love from the 60s, some of which you've already discussed on the podcast, like the Antonioni. Heck yeah. Um, so of course, couldn't pick that. And I thought about 
um, you know, Imamura and Olmi and Romare and Neruza and Bergman and the list goes on and on. There's so many great, great films from the 60s. And, you know, we'll talk about, I guess, whether this is a great film. I, I don't know that I can argue it's a perfect film or a masterpiece, but um, it seemed so pertinent to the project I'm working on that it seemed like a good film to revisit. I thought even more highly of it this time around. I really enjoyed it. It's more more of a solid piece than I uh, gave it credit for previously. Yeah, I, I found watching it for the second time, which I also did in advance of this podcast, to be really interesting and there were new things that um, caught my eye or stood out to me on second viewing, so. Totally agree. So let's get into it. Who are you, Polly Magoo? This is a movie about uh, a, a Brooklyn model in Paris who is being interviewed for a TV show, a, a French TV show called Who Are You? And that's basically just uh, an excuse for us to explore through this this journalist, this TV journalist who's trying to interview her for this program and, and just, uh, you know, other scenes and fantasies from her life and other people's lives about uh, about who this fashion model is, who for most people is, is nothing more than a face with no... Uh, you know, mind or, or personality behind it. So it's uh, it's kind of uh, addressing the idea of what being a model is. And uh, it's it's set in the fashion world of Paris in, in the 60s, made in 1966, which uh, Natasha, you said was an important year as far as fashion and, uh, and commerce is concerned. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about this intersection of art and fashion, because this is something that super interests me. And like Bart said, you had previously mentioned that 1966 was this year of this intersection of art and fashion and I find that stuff super fascinating so I would love to hear you talk more about that I mean I I, you know I I have to preface this by saying I'm not a historian of fashion but I have become really interested in this period because of the book I'm working on even though I'm not really writing about fashion in the 60s but um, you know 1966 I think really was a turning point and it's also notable to me that you have two I think important films that Kind of talk about fashion this film and and blow up which you know you talked about in your antonioni episode a little bit um which you know also concerns a fashion photographer and of course william klein who directed who are you polly magoo being one of the most important fashion photographers of his day making this film about the fashion industry so um you know i think this was a moment maybe where fashion became Um, of broader cultural interest. And I I also think that there's a lot of things that happen in this period, specifically in this year, that um, make fashion maybe a little bit more relevant to the culture at large. So Yves Saint Laurent, who had worked for Dior, then started his own fashion house, becoming one of the most prominent designers of his day, lauded as a genius and continued to have a very long career, you know, even after the 60s through the 70s and 80s continued um, to be the most prominent or one of the most prominent living designers. In 1966, opened a ready-to-wear boutique. So he had been a couture designer 
And I think that this was a signal that the fashion industry had this broader cultural relevance, was um, appealing to a broader public, was sort of democratizing. Prior to the ready-to-wear, so-called ready-to-wear revolution, you had couture, which was a very elite industry with a very limited number of buyers, um, individuals who would have clothes made specifically for them based on designs that they could see at fashion shows, say, in Paris. And these fashion shows, and I think this actually relates well to Polly Magoo because the first scene is, takes place at a fashion show. We could talk specifically about that scene because I'd argue that, at least in my mind, that's the most brilliant scene in the entire film. And um, you know, prior to this, though, in the 50s, say, or into the early 60s, fashion shows were these very intimate, very elite, kind of stuffy affairs. Often they would take place on the premises of a fashion house and you'd have, say, wealthy women, a uh, very small, elite kind of crowd of people in a room that would often be set up like a domestic setting, so like a drawing room that was very ornately decorated in, um, you know, a fashion house in Paris. So you're talking about kind of a, you know, let's say 18th century or 19th century townhouse. And so within a small room or a small series of rooms, you'd have these models who would be sort of nameless, who were unknown, um, often were sort of socialites perhaps, or just very attractive sort of graceful women, but they weren't celebrities. They weren't known outside of this very small sphere. And so in the 60s too, you had the rise to, of ready to wear, which democratized fashion, where now a, a much, much broader group of people would have access to um, designer clothes. But then you also had, say, the youth quake in 60s London and, you know, swinging 60s, which is what Antonioni is depicting, where you have a much more youthful take on fashion, where fashion becomes much more accessible, not just from a price point perspective, but you have a real youth-driven sort of fashion scene, if you think of like mini skirts and fashion that's really appealing to a younger demographic where, you know, in the past, young people would try to emulate a more adult look. Now there's a distinctly sort of youthful look that's taking hold in the 60s. And so I think this film is coming out of that, um, maybe a little bit less about the swinging 60s as say blow up, but I think is about this, this moment of transition in fashion. Also when fashion is becoming a much more international and media-driven, sort of celebrity-driven as well, um, sort of adjunct of popular culture. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Yves Saint Laurent. I want to also point out that by uh, 65, when he had broken out uh, on his own and started his own fashion house, is when he debuted with that Mondrian collection, mm. which I would argue is maybe the most iconic 60s fashion that I can think of, at least. When, when I think of the 60s, I think exactly of these dresses, specifically on like a very twiggy type model, which was also very a 1960s type woman. Yeah. And then having these very straight cut dresses with these large s stripes or color blocks or big patterns that aren't showing off her body so much for the male gaze, but showing off her body as a piece of art. Uh, very directly, obviously, as we're dealing with literally Mon Mondrian, the famous painter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I yeah. love those dresses so much. I, I actually I have a bootleg from H and M uh, from like over ten years ago, and it doesn't fit my body type whatsoever. But I can't toss it because I just love it too much. <laughs> yeah, no, I think those dresses are amazing, and and um, you know you think that it's printed on the dress, but it's actually 
like couture level um, construction because to have that effect where it's like a flattened plane, like a painting, but in fact, it's a three-dimensional object um, or it's meant to be worn obviously on a three-dimensional body uh, took enormous skill and, and they're incredibly well-constructed and uh, just, you know, for someone obviously who's interested in the intersection of art and fashion, that's a real touchstone and especially for the 60s. Also, very, very interestingly, I, I was sort of reading around this movie a little bit, trying to get some information online, and there's not a ton, at least, that I could find, but I did find um, an interview with William Klein where he actually said the inspiration for the designer who's shown in the first scene of the film, Isidore Ducasse, is Yves Saint Laurent. So the connection there is very direct, too. Um, although there are some people who have said that it's based on Paco Rabanne because... Um, Paco Rabanne was a designer who, in his first fashion collection in 1966, was titled 12 Dresses in Unwearable Materials, um, which were constructed not only from metal, but also plastic, paper, cardboard. So um, some people have said that, okay, clearly this designer is modeled on Paco Rabanne, but uh, in fact, according to William Klein, his, his version of the story is it was based on Yves Saint Laurent and this collection was inspired, according to him, from Polly Magoo. So he claims that it's derivative of the film. I love that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the name Isidore Ducasse, I had just looked it up earlier. It's uh, apparently it's the, the nom de plume of a French surrealist, which I uh, thought was already pretty clever on top of being this uh, really abstract clothing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, please describe this first scene for us. I think we, we need to fill everyone in. Yeah. Oh, and actually, just before we get into that, I should say, I think there's there there's a lot of really clever, um, I think William Klein's doing a lot of really clever things with names. So for instance, uh, Prince Igor, who's a character I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, is from a country that at some point is identified as Borodine, Borodine, who was a composer who wrote the opera Prince Igor. So uh. there is a lot of, uh, I guess, like references and allusions in the film. Plus that flag that looked like that mod target. Yeah, which is like the most 60s looking flag you could possibly come up with. I feel like that black and white, really graphic. Yeah, very mod flag. Yeah, well, the first scene in the film, which, uh, like I said, I, you know, it, it really starts with such a bang because I thought that scene is, um, that first scene is so, so brilliant. It, it basically takes place at a fashion show and um, also interesting illusion. It, it takes place in this really distinct kind of sculptural uh, brick structure. It's like a grain cellar or something. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Which I, I looked up because I thought, you know, I've seen this before and it actually is in another 1966 film, Godard's uh, Made in USA in the lab. Uh. Um, so it was this kind of work of experimental architecture, but repurposed for this film as the site of a fashion show. And that's where we start the film. Um, so we see these models getting dressed or, or kind of being wrapped in sheet metal and these sheet metal garments. Soldered into. Yeah, soldered into them. We see them being, uh, you know, fastened into these sheet metal dresses with bolts. And then you have some guy with like pliers tightening the metal. And, and then it cuts to, well, no, no pun intended, but it cuts to a model screaming out like, I'm, you know, I cut myself and is bleeding on the sheet metal. 
and the designer says something like, oh, I'll take care of it, which, you know, for him means, oh, I'm just going to cover it with makeup. And he's sort of consoling her, <laughs> saying like, well, no one's going to see it when we put on makeup, which is clearly not what upset her about being cut on machine metal. Um, and then, you know, we, it, we see people sort of filtering into the sort of front row around where uh, the fashion show is going to take place and gasps as this fashion editor uh, enters the scene who will become a recurring character in the film who also is supposedly based on a real-life person, the uh, notorious Vogue editor at the time, Diana Vreeland, who will also have to talk about that character because I think that's one of the great characters in the film. And Miss um, Maxwell. Miss Maxwell, thank you. Yeah, so Miss mm -hmm. Maxwell in the film, a.k.a. Diana Vreeland, and I think that would have been probably pretty obvious to anyone in the fashion industry at the time that it was modeled on um, on this sort of intimidating, larger-than-life um, figure. Vogue? She was the... Vogue was her magazine? Yeah, she became the editor of Vogue, I think, in 1963. So she had worked for Harper's Bazaar, and then actually after Vogue would get involved in the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum where she staged the first museum exhibition of a living designer, which was incidentally for Yves Saint Laurent in 1983. So it kind of comes full circle. But um, yeah, I, I thought this scene is just so, so brilliant. You have the sort of fashion journalists and attendees, sort of all these fawning pronouncements, crying out, you know, magnifique and the editor herself exclaiming that he recreated woman. Reinvented woman. Oh, he reinvented woman. All this hyperbole around the show, you have, you know, as the editor enters the space, people kind of saying like, oh, that like Vichy editor and the designer saying like, well, she won't understand this show either. Kind of everybody's sort of, you know, having all these cutting remarks about everyone else and that juxtaposed with all the hyperbole and all the fawning praise. Um, but also I thought what was so clever about this and what made it such brilliant satire was you have these models that are so expressionless and serious and then the seriousness of the scene is sort of underscored by this soaring choral music and that kind of contrasted with just the extreme absurdity of these sheet metal dresses and the models sort of cutting themselves and these like ridiculous characters I thought just made it really well calibrated and really brilliant and just another thing that I guess stood out was how familiar it felt in terms of fashion shows today and, and I think this is a testament to 1966 as this kind of pivotal year when you see fashion shows from the 50s, you see a very, very different kind of intimate, much more sort of reserved scene. And with this, I think you, you begin to see the, the role of the media and the role of fashion editors, for instance, and this sort of Diana Vreeland-like character who kind of enters with her, her coat draped over her shoulders where she doesn't put her arms through the sleeves. And of course, today, this is still like the trope of the fashion editor, like with the coat draped over the shoulders, which I guess some people refer to as shoulder robing. That's like a, I guess, like a baller fashionista move. And, um, you know, similarly, this kind of um, over the top fawning um, around fashion and designers and, and just the, the kind of spectacle of it.
that all seemed something kind of remarkably contemporary. I also really liked how Klein kept lowering his camera while the models were on stage to make it look like the models were just floating into the air to make them seem very angelic and sort of not not of this earth, you know, just sort of separate from the rest of us, these, these divine creatures that uh, exist on another plane from the rest of us. Yeah, it seemed like that at some point too, they almost seem like they're on like a conveyor belt or something. Like they're they're floating, but they're also almost like moving through the space without walking, kind of just like levitating through the right. space. You know, there there seems to almost be movement as well. Like I don't know exactly how Klein shot that scene, but the models, it's almost like they're on a kind of conveyor belt or like a moving walkway or something. They seem to sort of like levitate, moving without walking somehow. Yeah, when Polly Magoo shows up on stage, that's when you really see it where she's just sort of on a conveyor belt rather than than walking. And it seems like it, you know, it was maybe to distinguish her from the rest of the models, but it's a great effect. It really captures that fantasy of it, which I think is uh, an important theme throughout this entire film. Fantasy and puns seem to be the top <laughs> two themes. Like one of those fawning people at the end there, they say, you didn't just create, you galvanize women. Right, 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 right. Which yeah. I thought was was stupid, but funny. <laughs> no, totally. I feel like there's, for me, that's one of the big themes of the film too, is also like real versus fake. And also, I mean, this fits Klein's style so well because he was a photographer who was known for his sort of gritty, spontaneous um, street photography where things would be sort of out of focus or in movement. But then he also did fashion photography, which is so much about like artifice and composition. And so I feel like that seems to really play heavily in not only the look of the film, but also the content, the sort of like thematic qualities of the film. Also because you know, the protagonist was a model and was a real person who was a, you know, famous fashion model, maybe not quite at the level of like Twiggy or Jean Shrimpton or someone like that, but, you know, obviously had been on the cover of magazines and was William Klein's favorite model of that period. And so... Dorothy McGowan. Yeah. And, and actually, I read somewhere that her nickname was Magoo, I guess McGowan mm. Magoo. And so even though her name isn't Polly, um, there is this, I think, interesting tension between what is actually real, what is essentially almost like quasi-documentary or based on real people or sort of satire of like a real industry and a real cast of characters and what's sort of fantasy and, and beyond fantasy like fairy tale. Yeah, that's, um, I have to say that this is the the second time I've watched this movie, and it definitely made more sense to me the second time around. The first time around, I thought this was sort of like a Godard wannabe, <laughs> but still funny and, and wonderfully shot. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Klein in general. I love Mr. Freedom as one of my favorite films, uh, period. <laughs> but um, I, I was, it was very interesting to rewatch this and realize that it actually was a lot more of his film than it was any sort of artifice but it is very much about artifice it's definitely a film that's wrestling with the whimsy and the vapidity of, of fashion uh while also celebrating its creativity and the extreme emotional highs and lows of what fashion really has to offer and i thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at it because this is not someone who's coming at it from like a, a hater perspective and it's he's not coming at it with a, a complete love and it can do no wrong perspective it's this great middle of the road that really creates like the perfect satire of dissecting it and and also dissecting the people that 
don't understand it and are trying to bottle it as something that is way more than it is trying to unnecessarily psychologically break down the meaning and the point of all of this when the reality is it's just fun (laughs) it's just people having fun and they kind of repeat that over and over and they really indulge in what what becomes the fantasy of fashion and and what now is this new concept of fashion as fantasy as opposed to just practicality it seemed like to me a movie that was desperately in search of something real in this very artificial world and there's very little that you actually get in the movie that feels real at all for i mean it seems like that's the point in a way that no matter how hard you look for something real in this in this fashion world you can't really find it or you know and it's more even directed at at media itself mm. like i feel feel right. like a, for a movie that's about fashion Klein doesn't really seem to have much interest in the styles at all. Like, he doesn't really show off great clothing very much in this movie. It seems more focused on just mass media and and television and, and the, you know, how, how people view models and uh, the falseness of the, of the art and fashion world rather than the fashions themselves. I don't know. I think that there's a, you know, the in that character, Gregory, who is meant to be the, the host and, and the producer and the director of this Who Are You program, he gets the piss taken out of him about as much as Polly Magoo does <laughs> because he spends so much time trying to break down and understand things. He, he starts to ask her these questions about it's all it's all surface. And, you know, I don't my producer doesn't think you're even a real human being. Do you even exist? And these kind of like pretentious and obnoxious questions that just make him seem more like a jerk than they do her. And like, granted, you know, when they're interviewing her about who are you, all she has to say is to talk about like, well, I grew up in Brooklyn and I had a rabbit once. And when I was young, I wasn't hot and now I'm hot, you know. And so I thought it was that perfect a double-edged sword, I suppose. It's, it's really attacking both sides of it because it's not that he's ever the, the correct one. Everything that he asks and he does trying to break her down, he just comes across as a fool. And of course, in the end, he ends up falling in love with her despite all of his misgivings about the fashion world. The, the attraction of this fantasy that's being made is just too much for him to resist. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I saw an interview with uh, with William Klein, and he said that the film was not about fashion, it's about media, and, you know, fashion is part of media. And I do think that even though they're represented as sort of two distinct spheres, the sort of media side or this television program and the way it intersects with the fashion world, um, I do think that, you know, for both, they're kind of represented as these worlds where there is this real kind of tension between artifice and reality. So you have the way the media is represented. I totally agree with you, Jenna. It's, it's, they, they are definitely not, um, if anything, I think even more sort of satirized um in some ways so you know the way that they handle their subjects is often really exploitative the way that like you know when Polly Magoo first comes back to her apartment like the crew is just set up there and you know they to get the microphone um they kind of just shove it up her shirt and uh without (laughs) you know any kind of niceties um and they're kind of reposing their subjects and demanding that they do things differently that they walk differently that they talk differently there's another scene with that sociologist which i also think is another great scene in the film where they're kind of telling him or instructing him to smoke a cigarette or to lean like really awkwardly on his hand as he's speaking Um, and it all just seems kind of ridiculous but this is all purportedly 
in the interest of creating a sense of authenticity around these characters. I love the scene with the TV producer on when he's back in the office and he's on the phone. He uh, picks up and he screams at the uh, at the operator about, you know, like, give me the right line. You know, you dumb idiot. Like, give me this line. And then finally he gets whoever's on the line and suddenly he's really soft spoken like, oh, hey, baby, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how? Oh, oh, that's terrible. How many dead? Oh, did you film it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's one thing Klein does so well, the kind of different registers and like things kind of shifting quickly to sort of like really tease out the absurdity. Yeah, and the scenes with the TV crew and this these sort of characters who think that they're doing like serious work and yet one of the one of the things I love too is when they're kind of screening the Polly Magoo episode for I guess the TV director or whatever and um, then the next one the next installment is going to be who are you Paul the sixth the Pope it's like right. <laughs> it's like going from like a model kind of talking about like you know if she was an, an animal she'd be a rabbit to like who are you like Paul all the six um anyway it, it just yeah i think that's something like william klein just amazing kind of deadpan sense of humor Absolutely. i really like how how klein's satire is relentless in this movie like everything is satirical but it doesn't seem particularly vicious it just seems like this is how he has fun by sort of right. poking fun at every little thing like anything he can you know just twist the knife a little he'll he'll sort of jab it in there a little but he's not he doesn't seem furious with anybody. He's just, uh, you know, sort of pointing out all the all the absurdities more than anything else. As opposed to to Mr. Freedom, his his film after this, which is a pretty vicious anti-American satire. This one, this one feels a little more gentle, I guess. Well, there is that one great moment that is, I would say, the one moment of truth, perhaps, in in this film. Bart, you were saying that there wasn't really much of that, but I think that that one scene where Polly is at home before she the film crew has arrived and she's completely no makeup she's at sitting in her bed she's like zapping blackheads or something and she's eating a whole tray of crap in her bed and she has no makeup she's wearing ugly clothing she has this unwashed hair and she's uh you know talking on the phone about like uh oh i read that fashion is more rigorous than philosophy you know and this sort of it, it, it is in itself a satirical scene, but I thought it was actually pretty, it, it didn't feel mean. It just felt like just this perfect dressing down of this is your, this is your star kind of moment. You know, this is, this is Polly Magoo. Here's the only scene in which we see Polly Magoo. And then immediately she gets dressed and puts on all that crazy makeup. And we don't really see her again after that, unless we see her in these fantasy scenes which I also enjoyed. I, I kind of thought that those were funny and, and also kind of got across both the, the dream of fashion and, and uh, why you're completely right to criticize it. <laughs> I mean, I think there is a little bit of edge. I mean, certainly not like Mr. Freedom. I think, uh, you know, there, there are lines in the film like fashion is about money and illusion to sell and dupe people. The industry invokes its powerful magic, the model. And I do think there's this sense of celebrity as commodity and because uh, William Klein had also made that earlier short that is sort of like very proto-pop um, Broadway by Light where he's filming all these sort of neon signs around Times Square. I think he is very, very interested in advertising and marketing as a kind of form of propaganda. And I, I, I do think that sort of infuses the film and probably infuses a lot of his films. 
Um, and yet, maybe because the lead character was somebody that he knew and worked with, and, and somebody who is, on one hand, a fictional character, but obviously it's, it's kind of like an auto-fiction thing where it's largely based on her biography, I wonder if that sort of tempers the sort of biting satire to some extent. I mean, you have those biographical details, and I thought that was actually a really sort of powerful move that he makes, where on one hand, you have her kind of telling her story, and she's saying it in this like really sing-songy kind of way, almost as if she's like relaying a fairy tale, or she's kind of like a story she knows by heart, kind of saying like, I was born in Brooklyn to a policeman father, and you know, she's going through sort of her family history and it almost it almost does sound like a story like it doesn't sound real but then the juxtaposition of that with like her actual sort of family photographs and her actual childhood photographs and like her first communion and then this story about how she was discovered um, waiting to see the Beatles at you know Kennedy Airport which there is this kind of moment I think where as a viewer you sort of think like okay this is clearly so artificial and, and sort of ridiculous. And then you're kind of confronted with this documentary evidence and you think like, well, actually this is the real person. This is a real story. And, and there is this kind of interesting, I don't know, like ambivalent quality to that. But at the same time, I think that uh, he is playing again with what's, what's real and what's artifice in that uh, I later read there was an interview in Harper's Bazaar with Dorothy McGowan, who plays Polly Magoo, and she was saying, actually, that footage that looks like her as like a teenager waiting to see the Beatles was actually sort of staged, that she had been with, um, with William Klein, and he, they were actually on the phone, and he said, like, what's all that screaming in the background? And she was staying at a hotel in New York and she said oh the Beatles were also staying in the same hotel and there were all these like young girls screaming outside so he supposedly ran over and she impersonated like a much younger starstruck fan in the crowd with all of these other sort of like teeny bopper types and so those images that you see in the film were already sort of these like reconstructions these like fake images of her amongst these crowds so i don't know i mean i do think that it's not the most biting satire but there there is even i think in the way the film is sort of constructed a kind of subtler critique running throughout the whole film about the way the media constructs narratives and the way film constructs narratives and and what these narratives are and 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 to what extent they correspond to reality and to what extent they don't. Well, the whole other aspect of this movie, the whole you know whole whole plot line that we haven't really addressed yet is the uh, the Prince Igor plot line and how this is all Polly Magoo's story is sort of talked about as if it's a you know a Cinderella fantasy, like it's telling her story as a Cinderella story, and that's part of her you know the the way she she is sing songy when she's telling you know, about her her personal history and and you know it, it feels rehearsed like it's it's a fairy tale and it's sort of even when she's zapping blackheads and you know with, with no makeup it still sort of feeds into this whole Cinderella started as nothing you know her becoming a model is is sort of this uh, this Cinderella story how she was swept up just by chance and is now living in this fantasy life and that the the life of a, of a model is is very much like the life of a princess and it sort of um, you know, juxtaposes that idea with this 
this actual prince of Foradin Igor who has fallen in love with this photograph of Polly Magoo and he wants to marry her and, and there's no joy in his life. He can't, uh, he can't manage to do anything with any pleasure until he finds Polly Magoo and, and, uh, and, and brings her back and makes her his princess. So, so he sends out these, these agents to, to find her and bring her back. And they're, they're sort of these incompetence and, and uh, a good, good portion of the film is just watching their hijinks. But uh, we never really do get this picture of Polly Magoo as an actual human being. You know, these, these pictures of her actual life, staged or otherwise, you don't know who who she is or or what she wants, and that's that's the name of this film. We're trying to figure out is there anything there? Like you get a little, you get a sense of her playfulness and her personality a little bit, but we don't know what she wants. Like she enjoys, she likes to have a good time, I guess, and that's about all you get. Whereas you you know contrast that with Gregory Jean Rochefort, who also has a similar scene where you see pictures of him younger the actual actor Jean Rochefort as a young man and you you definitely get more of a sense of him as an actual human being and this life that he's lived and and what he what he wants and desires and he seems like a fully fleshed out human being whereas Polly Magoo never seems like anything more than the Cinderella which is which is very much the point of the movie Hmm. the prince was sort of interesting because he felt more like a specter of fame than he felt like a real thing there's so much about this fantasy of the prince all that totally stylish and cool scene of all of the models all dressed in black and white stripes and a black and white striped room and everything shot as if you are the mirror looking back at the people who are looking in these vanity mirrors and it goes down the line as they're all talking about like oh I would love to marry a prince and all of this sort of dopey kind of dreaming and then they sort of say well my one friend married a prince and it turns out he married 85 other women and it's really tough out there you know And then there's also, I mean, there's all of these weird little fantasy moments that are even like straight up animated cutouts flying over France, uh, Polly Magoo and the Prince. And then they land and she's in this gorgeous kind of medieval style dress with the square neck and the big bell sleeves. And then it kind of cuts to the fact that she's standing under these like train tracks and, (laughs) you know, going into this crummy house. And it turns out it's like Gregory's crappy family who are all sitting around making stupid puns about her. (laughs) So I kind of liked it. It felt like the prince was really there to be the dream of fashion and to be what is being sold with fashion more so than his character was trying to make a commentary on on her I thought because there's even that scene where the the actual prince finally arrives and and since then we've only seen these fantasy cuts of what the prince could be like and we kind of see him lounging around in his very stylish mod room with uh, like a white shag carpet bed playing with his robot the man cave yeah the the mod man cave full of like gadgets and toys my favorite part of that room is did you notice in the backdrop it's a mural on the wall of like a family kind of royal portrait and there's a blinking arrow pointing at him in that poor in the family photo (laughs) just to really make it clear whose room it is and I love that we get that's all we get of him is the fantasy of him and then him, you know, lounging around in luxury. And then finally, when he does arrive to France, all he does is this boring ass shit. <laughs> he does not he like walks around, and goes, hello, how are you? Goodbye. You know, like totally boring, bland dude. Cut some ribbons. Yeah, it's like the the like the least interesting and the, the least, uh, you know, appealing guy. And then 
of course he comes to her her apartment when they figured out where she lives and he rings on the doorbell and of course she had just left and the neighbor who's also a model answers the door and says oh she just walked out but oh you know what the met she's here and polly's gone so screw it he marries that woman instead and it felt like you know uh, <laughs> fame the fickleness of fame kind of uh, thing spoiler alert yeah um yeah spoiler well, I mean, no, I, I was really struck the second time I saw this, I think kind of maybe like you, Jenna, the first time I, I, I remembered it being a lot less uh, like cohesive. And right. it the second time I, I was really struck how much it really is very simply like a Cinderella story for a celebrity driven media age, you know, that there's the plot is like so simple, very little actually happens in the film. There's a lot of um, like these fantasy sequences, but in terms of like actual plot, it's pretty um, simple and, and it's pretty much, you know, Polly Magoo is on this TV show. There's an episode of this TV show where they um, are filming her and then they need more content and then there's like the side plot of Prince Igor being sort of infatuated with her and deciding he wants to marry her and coming to Paris and that's basically the whole film but it is very very interesting in a way how they're sort of the same kind of like vacant character you have the, mo the way the model's depicted where um, ultimately it almost seems like in that black and white scene that you were describing, that kind of mod scene with all of the models sitting in front of the mirror, like it does seem like their collective fantasy is to marry a prince. That's like their way out in a sense because you see the alternative, like early in the film you see Polly Magoo walking the streets of Paris and all of these creepy men kind of coming up to her, right. that guy cutting off a lock of her hair. I mean, she's wearing a wig, but... He like comes up to her with a pair of scissors. There's like someone else following her, some other guy trying to chat her up to the extent that he like walks into oncoming traffic and is like struck down. You have um, that really weird guy trying to gift her shaving cream and then she like, you know, <laughs> sprays him in the face with the shaving cream. And that's like the alternative for her. It's all of these guys who kind of treat her as an other, you know, either that encourages a kind of conquest, but it also sort of excuses them maybe mistreating her or harassing her because it's like she's not really perceived as fully human. And her character is definitely very like vapid in a way, but it's like she's just sort of a receptacle for this like fantasy, this kind of like something that all these men are like projecting onto. And, you know, the French word for model, mannequin, it does seem like there's something like almost like an object, you know, that she's not seen as like a fully three-dimensional person. Yeah, I felt really, I actually felt for her as, as vapid as that, that whole world seems, which of course, and, and he does a great job of, of doing a takedown of, of the pretentiousness of the fashion world. I, I feel more for her than I did for anyone else in the movie because it's just there's constant remarks about her and, and even when she's in front of people they treat her like as you said they treat her like a mannequin when she's not there they criticize her and and then you get these men who are sitting there commenting about oh you should date me and and uh, or uh, I bet no real man wants you but I'm a real man kind of crap and or on the other side of it it's these men commenting about oh fashion's just for teenagers and there's no chest and no hips. They're all androgynous red riding hoods. And, you know, it's all money and illusion. They're just trying to dupe people. And it's like, well, maybe it's not for you, man. <laughs> she seems to enjoy her life, though. 
She, she does. Think it's a lot I think more fun than I would. I mean, she seems to find this TV crew kind of amusing and, and fun, and it just seems like a terrible ordeal to be subjected to all of these like tests and questions and having to perform. I, I love that scene in the end with, I think it was Miss Maxwell in the end where she talks about, I want her face smooth and hard like aluminum. Her face should say beep beep <laughs> like a rocket. <laughs> yeah. Perfect for like, the- like, That's my dream. The moment of like space age fashion too, right? Perfect. But I also, I and I love how dehumanizing it is for her to say that in front of her. It's totally like an obnoxious comment. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Igor a little bit, though, I, I did find it interesting, even though I felt like his, every time Igor stuff came onto the screen, I, I sort of, my uh, my interest sort of waned a little bit. I definitely felt like this was like the weakest part of the film, especially his like, two incompetent spies, the Tweedledee, Tweedledum, Dumb and Dumber of the film, which, I mean, which is, you know, maybe meant for comic relief, although I found it, like, invariably not very funny, even though I guess it was sort of slapsticky. But um, I, I don't know. I did find it interesting. I felt like, uh, you know, the Prince Igor character did have to be there. I think that the whole idea of a fairy tale, of it being a kind of fairy tale, was important to the film and, and a kind of you know, fairy tale where we were somewhat led to believe that it was all building towards them eventually meeting. And of course, they never even meet in the entire film, despite the fact that he has two spies trying to track Polly down and he even finds where she lives. And of course, just immediately ends up with this other woman. But I, I, I don't know, I did find it kind of interesting how there are sort of these parallel characters, how even though Igor's is represented as someone who obviously is like projecting a lot onto this Polly character and has her framed photographs all over his man cave. And he, he imagines her as like a majorette and as a kind of sexy Shirley Temple and has all of these Fred and Ginger kind of fantasy of, of what it would be like to spend time with Polly Magoo that ultimately the models themselves are sort of projecting a kind of fantasy onto him and how it's sort of reciprocal and, and the way that you see the media. You know, Jen, I think you're right. I mean, when he shows up in Paris, he just seems sort of bored and indifferent as he's going to factories and sort of unveiling statues. But it, it you also realize like royalty, I guess, is a media construction as well. And, and they're both like the model and the prince are these kind of like demigods in modern society, these kind of like larger than life, quasi, divine and that was another word that appears constantly throughout the film and and for emphasis you have miss maxwell saying divine in english and then divine in french just to add extra emphasis so it, it did seem like uh, these two characters in some way both belong with each other but also distinctly don't because they're both like projections and fantasies right it, it felt like a if Igor specifically felt like a commentary on the dream versus the reality and the inevitability of a letdown when you're selling a dream as a lifestyle, which is what this transition into this ready-to-made fashion was, was that you're you're not just selling clothing. It's not that simple. You're buying and selling a lifestyle and a dream. And, you know, models, uh, similarly, they, they have it easy, but it's, but it's hard because it's all fickle and fleeting and at the end of the day, the, the dream that you're selling is just not, it's never going to come together <laughs> in the same way that, if, that Polly never meets her prince. But 
I mean, to what end? He's not he's not so great. It's not such a it's not a tragedy as much as it just feels like a, just an uh, like a good undercutting, which is what Klein is so great at. Yeah, you don't feel sorry for her not not hooking up with her prince in the end. And she seems pretty OK with it, too. You know, not knowing that she had an opportunity to to run into him. But we're not sorry that that she she wasn't able to fulfill that fantasy i like what you said um bart was so spot on too which is like klein doesn't seem very interested in clothes and in fact even the way fashion is depicted it, it really doesn't seem to be about clothes at all as much as it's about fantasy it's a kind of dream factory one scene that i also thought was really interesting was the fantasy that igor sort of dreams up as he's sitting at home in his man cave of polly coming to i guess Borodine his home country and the train and it's a sort of snowy landscape and and one thing it immediately kind of recalled and I don't know maybe I'm just imagining this because um, it is also from 1966 so I don't know if this would have come out in time for it to be incorporated into the film but it reminded me of uh, Richard Avedon um, photo spread for Vogue which is a, a, you know Diana Vreeland um, commissioned with Farushka who of course was in Blow Up the photo shoot took place in a wintry Japan and I think appeared in the February 1966 issue of Vogue. And there's photographs of Varushka wearing a fur hat and fur coat on a train and in a train station as part of that photo spread. And, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just like kind of making this up, but I thought that there might be a allusion to that in the film. And there is something about you know, was that even that photo shoot selling a fur coat or a fur hat as much as it was selling the, this like kind of glamorous, exotic lifestyle and the Miss, the Miss Maxwell slash Diana Vreeland character. I mean, it does seem like she's often kind of cryptic and a little nonsensical with these theatrical pronouncements. I mean, I loved the way what that scene was when her character is kind of dictating the article over the phone. And it's just almost in a way, it's like nonsense. It's all of this, you know, I, I wrote down, she says, um, you know, the Newton of the knee, the Houdini of the hips, the Bartok of the bosom, the Picasso of the <laughs> pelvis, the Frank Lloyd Wright of the female body. Re Isidore Ducasse has recreated woman. And born you know, of his ribs, she emerged fully clothed. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, I mean, it's like nonsense, but there is something kind of really seductive about it. And I think that's like the interesting thing that, I, I don't know, I get the sense that Klein is much more interested in that kind of seduction than in about clothes themselves or fashions themselves. Well, see, I saw that uh, that train scene as a uh, Dr. Zhivago reference. Like Polly is definitely dressed like Lara, like Julie Christie in that movie. I guess that was 65, so it would have come out the year before. So I'm sure it was still on everybody's mind. Yeah, that actually seems more plausible. See, I, I thought, oh, maybe this Richard Avedon thing. And then I saw it was February 1966. And I believe Polly and the Goo maybe debuted at Cannes. So I'm not sure that's even possible that it could have influenced the filming. But Dr. Chivago sounds more likely, especially because Igor is maybe Eastern European of some kind. Right. And his mother's uh, assistant there is very Rasputin-like, uh, actually played by f the filmmaker... Uh, uh, Fernando Arabal, but yeah, there's there's something very Russian about uh, about his principality, and uh, I, and I love the scene where the hussar is is, is running through the field saying that the uh, the prince is getting married, and uh, he 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 says, "Hey, you peasant!" <laughs> and, 
I, I, there, there are actually quite a few movie references in this that I picked up, and and I think even just having Igor played by uh, by Sammy Frey, who is Franz in Band Apart, the the Godard film, is I, I think there's reference to Band of Outsiders there, and his spy assistants are very much like Franz and Arthur in in uh, Band of Outsiders, so. I think Klein is putting a lot of cinematic references in there as well as references to works of his of his peers like Avedon and people like that. Well, Klein was considered a, a kind of a weird and he considered himself sort of a, an outsider in in the fashion world because he wasn't coming from this reverential background. He was coming from an art background. So it's funny because it sounds like what you're saying, Natasha, it sounds like basically this is this is the intersection of art and fashion right here. This is somebody who is an artist in his own right, looking at fashion and portraying it through his own lens. And the thing that interests him is not so much the cut of the clothes or the clothing. It's it's the feeling and it's the emotion, which is fantastic. It makes for great cinema. It makes for great art, whether or not it's actually selling the clothing, I think is maybe even arguable. But it's funny because there is such an interesting uh, history of, of fashion photographers and people in fashion turned filmmakers who've come up with some really fantastic movies. So uh, I would say that, you know, it, it is cool to think about that because I, I don't know, I guess in a way I, when I think about that intersection of art and fashion, I do end up thinking more about fashion who came to established artists and then had them collaborate which is great, and I love that stuff myself, but it is really interesting to sort of see a filmmaker who then is taking fashion and creating something entirely different with it and portraying it even in a way that that is outside of what maybe fashion can control. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the fashion industry really appreciated this. Uh, (laughs) I can't imagine. (laughs) William Klein got fired from Vogue in the aftermath of the film debuting, so probably Diana Vreeland did not appreciate (laughs) Miss Maxwell. Um, I don't think she was someone who was used to being made fun of. You know, I guess she was sort of like the original Devil Wore Prada. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I found one thing that I thought was really interesting thinking about William Klein as a, you know, I guess initially a painter and then as a photographer and watching the film is I do feel like there's such a distinct sensibility to the way the film is shot. And, you know, as a photographer, he was really well known for his street scenes, for his street photography. And I feel like the way crowds are shot, I mean, there's just, there's actually so many scenes with crowds and you really do get a sense of like authenticity. You get the sense of real people and kind of all of the sort of randomness and spontaneity of filming a crowd that, you know, they're not professional extras, they're not professional actors, and and also the close-ups. I think he was also really known for close-ups, and um, all of the films of Polly Magoo and Polly's face, both, you know, without makeup and with freckles, but also fully made up, and just all of these um, close-ups of faces too. It, it had such a distinct style to it, this film. And then also the the fashion shoots themselves, which you know would have been, I think, pretty akin to what you see Polly doing, both um, when she's posing on the tops of buildings, on rooftops, and sort of precariously like walking along the edge of a rooftop. I mean, this is something William Klein was known for, and. And also that amazing scene of like the photo shoot at the cemetery, which is also hilarious. Right. 
Fashion's mm-hmm. dead. Yeah, and, and one of the things he was also known for was using telephoto lenses, so th- like taking photos from a real distance, and, and you see how well that translates into film, both in terms of like that scene at the cemetery, but also even in the street scenes where he's filming actors or filming crowds from clearly like a distance. Yeah, no, I thought that was so interesting to see the way in which the film I think really does correspond to his like art photography as well as his commercial photography. See, it's almost a shame that we're doing a 1960s podcast because I feel like this would be a really good uh, double feature with Puzzle of a Downfall Child by, by Jerry Schatzberg, who was also a fashion photographer turned filmmaker. But alas, we can't talk about that because it's from 1970. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what would be, Natasha, your pitch for getting people to watch this do you think that this is uh historically important or do you just think that this is uh, like a solid movie you know i i mean like i was saying earlier i i don't know that i would say this is like one of the masterpieces of the 60s it definitely is an imperfect film like i do think some of the prince igor stuff gets to be pretty silly and and a little you know i I do feel like there might have been some editing that could have been done that would have made the film more consistent, but I do think it's an unbelievably stylish film. And I think you really get a sense of a particular moment. Um, and, you know, beyond that, I really do think it's, it's an important film if you're interested in particularly the media. I think that this moment in the 60s, like you really start to see the way like, you know, fashion, it does become part of like the media industry writ large and I think you have this interesting correspondence too between fashion and media where you know fashion is defined as what is new right like not just fashion being closed but it's the latest fashion it's what's the new and the media is often you know thought about as about being about the news um so you have this kind of commonality in terms of what's new um but i also think with both fashion and with media that is a little bit deceptive that's sort of like a way that's like a hook it's like a way of seeming relevant or urgent and in fact a lot of fashion is about referencing things from the past and a lot of media is about pseudo events the fashion show being a good example of that something that is not actually newsworthy that's not actually important but is a human interest story or that's kind of like the fluff that you see filling a lot of news outlets these days especially as they're under a lot of pressure to produce content like 24 hours a day seven days a week so i do think that this is like the beginning of where we are now in contemporary culture in terms of seeing the beginnings of culture becoming a sort of mass media industry or or part of mass media and you know this is also the period in the 60s where i mean again I'm, i'm coming more from an art background but you start to really see the professionalization of the artist you start to see the artist as self promoter and probably someone like warhol best epitomizes this where like the artist becomes a media figure and an icon as much as they're producing visual art and the kind of miss maxwell character is another great example of this where she's obviously so aware, as was her real-life analog, Diana Vreeland, of being a kind of media icon. I mean, Diana Vreeland always dressed a particular way with this, like, lacquered hair and these, like, red talons, these, like, really bright red nails and always wore particular things and had these sort of theatrical pronouncements. She said, you know, famously, like, pink is the navy blue of India and unshined (laughs) shoes are the end of civilization. All of these, you know, kind of like 
iconic sayings and and you see how now even like look at someone like Anna Wintour with her bob and her sunglasses all of these like eccentric things are actually just ways of being distinctive of having a signature look of having kind of a a character becoming a character becoming divorced from being a nuanced person and and becoming sort of like a flattened brand and and, and one thing i would maybe end with i think it was so um, clever. Actually, one aspect of this film I thought was really well done was the costume design, which I guess William Klein's wife did. And um, the fact that Polly wears this t-shirt throughout the film that says Polly on it and Polly as if it's like a brand, you know. And, and this really, I think, is a moment where whether it's models, whether it's visual artists, like you really start to see celebrity as brand in a way that is I think distinctly different from what comes before. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. It it's funny to think of the fact that kind of branding has been happening. <laughs> I feel like it was only more recently that we're now flat out calling it a brand in a weird way that we're saying instead of a human being you're a brand. <laughs> yeah. Which I can't stand, but it's not that it's a new concept, it's been around. But I don't know, it's it's funny too I find um Personally, I find 60s fashion really interesting because it, even though it was still this male-dominated field as far as the designers and, and who was really running things, it was still it was catering to this new type of woman and allowing her to be something other than a flat-out sex doll in a way, <laughs> or at least to find the sexuality in, in the abstract. And, and that, that kind of the playfulness and, and thinking towards the future instead of catering to the now is I, I just find that really interesting. Uh, and, and that blurring, as you said, that blurring of art in the everyday, like the casual Mondrian to go to the store and kind of stuff, to me is just, it's so wacky that it's, it's just fantastic. Well, I know you mentioned you have a list of all the uh, films with Pierre Cardin closing. Right. <laughs> I would love to see that list. I mean, there's there are so many um, stylish films from the 60s from a fashion perspective. And I think it is because, you know, fashion really is becoming something more abstract. It's not just about appearing like elegant, like the Dior new look or something. It's, it's starting to, you know, really try to do something other than just be beautiful or be attractive in a conventional sense, but to look futuristic or to to look androgynous or to look like an artwork. Two for the Road is one we watched where it, you know, every scene, Audrey Hepburn had a different outfit by a different designer and it was it's very much set up like, oh, this scene brought to you by so-and-so, <laughs> yeah. this designer, and the, this scene brought to you by you know, Christian Dior or, or you know whoever it might be. The original and product uh, placement, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I we love this movie. I was it was really wonderful to rewatch it because it made so much more sense. <laughs> now that I knew what it was watching. Yeah, no, I I was pleasantly surprised. I I kind of remembered it being a lot more chaotic the first time around. And it's just really fun to watch. I mean, there's a lot of absurd humor in it that even your first time through if you're not making a lot of sense out of it, you're it's still like easy to watch and enjoy and and laugh along with. So Definitely one to check out. I think he's a brilliant satirist. I, I, I can't think of too many other films that I think work quite as well as satire, at least, you know, when you think of the best moments of this film. There are some silly things, but I do think, you know, at its best, it's it's pretty brilliant satire for sure. Mm -hmm. Gotta watch Mr. Freedom. That's up next. Uh, 
Yeah. We're going to we'll stay on this call until you watch Mr. Free. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it just barely ekes in there, right? 1969. So thank you so much, Natasha. This was awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Oh, on. It's really my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.